Welcome to the LBCF podcast. Our vision is to learn to live and love like Jesus, where we live, work, and play. To find out more about our community, you can visit us at lbcf.org. We hope you are encouraged and challenged by this teaching from our community. You guys, I am Barbara Sinofsky. I'm the pastor of, I love saying this, family and soul care. It's so, I don't know, it's so wonderful. And Alvia is going to listen to me, and then I'm going to listen to him, and then we're going to talk to each other. So good morning. Good morning, LBCF family. Each of you that might be visiting us this morning, um, today we're in part three of a three-part series, teaching series on race. And um, even though this is the last teaching in that series, we are not ending the conversation. And we're in Lent, uh, 40-ish days before we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. This is a time to reflect, to lament that everything is not as it should be. And also to repent of all the ways that we as individuals and as church community, as families, have been or are a part of that. Two weeks ago, Pastor Ryan and Nora Malikmat shared using Matthew 25. They taught on God's kingdom. They talked about the cycle of broken shalom and pain that's evident not only in the world, but also in the church. And they called us to embrace the honesty that moves us to repentance and love. And then last week, Pastor Danny shared from Matthew 9. He exhorted us to listen to what is really at the heart of the race conversation. He asked, can we hear truth? even when it's difficult, when it's hard, when it's messy, when it's awkward, he reminded us to pay attention so that we can discover the beauty, the beauty of Christ that is in every person. And I'm, I'm going to invite you now into something that I call long-term hope. And hope has certainly been the word this morning. Um, and we don't check in with each other, just so you know. But Matt began by talking about hope, and it was in the words of everything this morning, long-term hope, choosing to trust in God's plan of restoring shalom, that rather than taking us to destruction, he's actually taking us to wholeness. And choosing to believe together that we will see his goodness in the land of the living here in Long Beach and that we are called, invited, asked to work together towards that goal, co-laborers with Christ. Remember what Pastor Danny said, the workers are few. Continually, we get to choose the weight of the cross. As together, we learn to live and love like Jesus. And um Chapter 12 of Romans is our scripture this morning, the entire chapter, because I could not figure out where to cut it. All of it was important to this conversation and to our lives as Christians. Alvia is going to be um, telling some stories, and uh, then he and I will be having a conversation together. We hope that you guys chat us up on Facebook, because uh, we want to hear from you as well. Um, I want to share some things about, about us, about LBCF, a little bit as a reminder of who we've been and who we are. And I'm going to begin by reading our unity statement and see, can you throw that up there? Beautiful. 
at Long Beach Christian Fellowship, we are a community learning to live and love like Jesus. In this discipleship journey, we acknowledge that we do not have all the answers and we wrestle with the tensions of our faith. Our unity is grounded in our adherence to the biblical essentials of our faith as expressed in the Apostles' Creed. Beyond these essentials, we recognize that we come from different backgrounds and traditions, and we land in different places in our interpretations of scripture. We're a third way community in that we hold unity in Christ in the midst of disputable matters. At OBCF, everyone is invited. And there is always more room at the table because we can build tables and add chairs. There is always more room. And um, next, I want to look at a map of our city. This is the one that um, this is the one that the We Love Long Beach put out. And notice where we are, because that star is actually where we're geographically located in the city. We are the star in the middle. <laughs> we follow a star. When we signed the original lease on our building in 1994, um, we started with leasing it. Today we own it. We actually had no idea at the beginning that it was located almost dead center in the middle of the city that we were called to. On the first day that we were able to have a Sunday gathering in the building, it was November the 4th, 1994, there was a friend of our community who spoke and blessed us and he spoke this prophetic word about our place in this city, that we would be a light and that the light would reflect into the entire city and to all the people that live here. And that light would be an invitation and call them. I think we still have that calling. I think that's still who we are meant to be. And let's look at the next slide because this Next chart reflects the racial makeup of the city of Long Beach. It's dated 2019, so it's a little behind, but not much. All of these numbers reflect people. People that God has given us to love. So look at, look at the makeup of the city of Long Beach. Look at the diversity of this city. Um, look at who we are. 44.8% Hispanic, 28.4% white, 11.8% Asian, 10.9% black, biracial 2.8, other, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Actually, in uh, the United States, we are the seventh most diverse large city. So I think that is so cool. These are the people that God has given us to love because he is a very good God. Thank you so much, C, for those slides. Now you get to see Alvia and me up close again. Uh, and let's go to the Bible. Romans 12, like I said, it's the whole dang chapter. It's one of my favorite chapters in the whole book. Uh, one of the reasons is it keeps calling to me. It keeps asking me to offer my body as a holy and living sacrifice. I get to choose over and over. Am I going to lay down my life for you, God? And then it asks us 
to be transformed from the inside out by the renewing of our minds. And what's really crazy about that is the verb transformed and the verb renewing. They're not, it's not a one and done. It doesn't say be transformed over next. It says be continually transformed. Keep on allowing the Holy Spirit to transform you, me, so that I can change <laughs> over and over and over again. And just when I think I got it, I don't. I'm being changed again. And there's something new. And then I love this part. I can respectfully tell you not to think of yourself as being more important than you are. I need to hear that. And then I love, I love the, I love that verse that says, we too, the many are different parts that form one body in the anointed one. And that we become together what we could not be alone. Then Paul asks us to love others well and don't hide behind a mask. Love authentically. And you know, people know how we're loving them. And then honor others by putting them first. And then hope is just around the corner. And like I said a minute ago, or maybe five minutes ago, it's long-term hope. It's not a sprint of hope. It's more than a marathon. I have um, an acquaintance who just ran a 100-mile race. Why? Because she could. What, what do you think the race is that we're being called to? I think it's the race of our lifetime. Next, it's a, it's a be hospitable. Open your life and your home to others. Learn about others. Hear their stories and share yours. Work towards unity and live in harmony. Embrace common people. Make peace with all. Overpower evil with good. And then I'm going to throw in like two verses that weren't in chapter 12. But in chapter 13, verses 9 and 10, it says, love your neighbor. We've heard that. Does love hurt anyone? Absolutely not. In fact, love achieves everything the law requires. Paul's words. And then finally, in chapter 14, the very first verse, this is what Paul writes. It is high time that you welcome all people weak in the faith without debating and disputing their opinions. That's always the job of the Holy Spirit. So are you hearing the invitation? Are you hearing it from the word of God? I hope so. I'm extending it for sure. The invitation to this race conversation and beyond where it's going to take us. The invitation to the next conversation, equally messy, equally God-breathed. We, the people of God, we're being invited to journey with God. The journey is always out of exile and into shalom. Because Jesus, our God, my God, is a teacher, a rabbi. And we, we are his students, his learners, curious, open ears, open eyes, always. We're not knowers. Learning, again, it means we're transforming continually. We are people of change, meant to move others forward with us as we change together. But there's a but here. Richard Rohr, he says it beautifully. He says, one of the keys to wisdom is that we must recognize our own biases. 
Yeah, word. <laughs> because to a large extent, I'm going to assert that we suffer from the malaise of what's called confirmation bias. We don't see or hear things as they are. We see and hear things as we are. We see what we want to see. We find those things that already confirm our assumptions and our preferred way at looking at the world. We always have a frame, if you will, that we're looking out through. And we only allow into that frame what we think fits. And then we close ourselves to anything that we decide, that we decide doesn't fit or that we decide scares us which ultimately means that we don't really learn anything. We're just continually confirming what we already know. But what if we choose new eyes? What if we choose a larger frame that moves, that breathes, that's pliable, that stretches and holds so much more than we ever thought was possible? What if we had, what if we had God eyes? I, I got these glasses from the elders. What if we had eyes that only looked at others with love? That would be so rad. That would be like so absolutely amazing. I've talked about this, these God eyes in the past, but I've never talked about them in this context. What if we choose to see others through the eyes of God? Brian McLaren, when he's writing about the Pharisees, he says that Jesus used imagination to punch just a tiny hole in their eyes, their walls of confirmation bias. And through that tiny little hole, new light could stream in and let them know that there's actually a bigger world outside of our certainties and, and, and just all the things that we already believe. And you know how Jesus punched that little hole? He used stories. He used parables. And then uh, one of my heroes currently is a man by the name of Wendell Moss. He's a teacher and facilitator and psychologist uh, at the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology. And he says this about the race conversation. Don't ask me my story. Don't ask me to teach you what it's like to be black. Learn who you are. What if whiteness is a construct. Who are you really? Where did your family come from? Where are your ethnic roots? When were they severed and why? When you know that about yourself, only then can you see me and hear me with God eyes. Only then is hope long-term. You guys, you know that I'm a pastor here at OBCF, and I've been one for a very long time. And I've learned long-term hope because things change all the time. And I am in love with this community, even as it has changed and continues to change. And through the years, I am actually becoming more and more myself. The child, woman, mother, wife, friend, pastor that God made me to be, I'm on this journey with you. I'm on this journey with you. 
but I'm bold and I'm badass and I'm a risk taker for the sake of the Holy Spirit that lives in me and lives in you. And we're being called people and invited by such a good God to become more than we ever dreamed, more than we thought was possible, to take on this complex conversation, this difficult, messy, awkward conversation about race for the sake of the gospel. And to allow the very stuff of the conversation to change us. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Hey, my roots are German. I am the stuff of liverwurst and cheese, of blood and tongue sausage, of Weisswurst and sauerkraut, of Kuchen and Café in the afternoon, polka music, Schuhplattlen. I am an immigrant who spoke no English, had an accent, and was relieved to lose it and relieved to stop wearing German clothes because I wanted to assimilate. I needed to assimilate the pain of the tauntings, the name callings, the shunnings was too much for the little girl. But my face was white, so I could assimilate. And in that moment, when I did, my roots were cut off. I am bringing my story back <laughs> and I'm going to embrace it and I'm going to tell it the story of my family, my ancestors, because I want to hear your story. So now we are going to hear, we get to hear from Alvia. What's up, everyone? Can you hear me? Can you hear me, Barb? I can hear you, Alvia. Great to be here with you, Barb. Uh, thank you for inviting me in the conversation, um, allowing me or giving me an opportunity to share my story. Um, and I just wanted to start by saying I love you, Barb. <laughs> I love you, and I'm just so thankful um, for how you have seen me, and we'll probably talk more about that Um been able to see my story and related your story to mine. Um, LBCF, uh, in being asked to talk about race and my story, I uh, <laughs> the immediate question that came to mind was, well, where do I start? You know, um, it's just such a broad conversation and it's really, it's a challenging one. It can be exhausting at times for me to talk about my experience with racism as I'm sure all of you um, have probably experienced also, even especially in this last year. Um, I thought through all kinds of personal stories of, you know, like times that I've interacted or been affected by people who um, are, are racist um, or, you know, who have mistreated me or discriminated against me or excluded me for the way I look. Um, but I've decided not to share those stories. I, I think it's. I think we've all heard stories like that, and we're all um, aware that there are people out there that do evil, um, people who uh, are hurt, uh, that that hurt others, and um, and I think we're all probably on the same page with many of those with with these types of um, stories of racism. But what I'd like to share um, is a little bit of my worldview um, because I'm nervous to 
today to talk, talk about the subject. And I'm nervous because this subject matters to me greatly. And really what I mean by subject is, is the church. Um, I think this conversation of racism and uh, diversity and justice that we've been having um, is absolutely a conversation about the mission of the church, about evangelism, our ability to add to our numbers as a kingdom. And it matters to me because I've decided years ago, I've bought into the, the institution of the church, for lack of better terms, and to making it my home. I've wanted to find my home in church, and not just LBCF, but the church at large. I became a Christian when I was uh, 17, 2003, and, um, you know, over the years, I've been involved with so many churches, and, and I have walked through a journey of trying to find home, um, my home in church, and I still believe in that mission, and I think that's what uh, ways makes this conversation a heavy conversation. So, um, let me share a little bit about me and my background. Uh, if you don't know me, um, my name is Alvia, and I am half Jamaican and half Korean. And uh, most people uh, identify me, uh, describe me as an African American, and I think that's true to an extent. Uh, but if I had to be honest, deep down inside, I feel Asian, very, very Asian. Whenever I fill out an application and to school or something, I, and I have to check African American or uh, or um, Asian, I typically select Asian. And uh, I was raised by my mother, who's Korean, uh, and she was born and raised in Japan. Uh, so my first language, therefore, was Japanese. And so not only do I feel Asian, deep down inside, I feel Japanese. Um, and it wasn't until I was 16 and my cousin, I remember a conversation I had with my cousin in passing where she said, you know, you need to stop telling people you're Japanese because you're actually Korean and you're actually Korean and Jamaican. And I remember it's totally like not a very significant, it wasn't a big conversation that we're having. It was just in passing, but it got me good because I'm still thinking about that conversation today. And I think what it is, is, you know, it was a, remi it was a reminder that, hey, Alvia, you need to figure out why you don't feel like the person that you really are. Mm -hmm. you, need to, you, need to, you need to adjust your, your worldview of yourself and your, you know, how you fit into this world. So, uh, you know, my mother, uh, she, one story she, she's told me a number of times is when I learned to speak English and it was in kindergarten and she's, uh, she, she's brought back to my attention my first day of kindergarten on several occasions. And my first day of kindergarten, I cried and cried and cried. And we got to the school. I went to, um, it's called the Little Red Schoolhouse in Hollywood, a Hollywood Little Red Schoolhouse. And my mother dropped me off and, and um, I did not want to go into school and I was crying and she asked, what's wrong? What's wrong? And, and I said, I don't know the language. They don't know my language. I don't know their language. And I was just so scared. And um, in kind of preparing this conversation or preparing for discussion, you know, one thing that I, I have to admit and um, 
is that that same little boy that's crying in front of the little red schoolhouse, I think uh, very much is alive and well in me. <laughs> and mm -hmm. I still have that same fear of yeah. entering into a new context and not knowing the language and afraid that they don't know my language. Uh, I know I was in contact with my father up until about middle school, and I probably spent you know most of my childhood visiting my father uh, probably once every three to six months. And I remember dreading the visit, not because of him as an individual, but if I can recall correctly, my fear was also not knowing the language. Um, you know, like going to going across town, across LA to visit my father who lived in a black community whose household was entirely black. And I'm this kind of oddball Asian kid visiting and every single visit, I, I felt like I was learning something new about who I am and who I was supposed to be. Um, when I examined my childhood, I have a half brother who's two weeks younger than me. Um, and anytime I can, anytime, any memory, probably every memory I have with my father, um, I have my brother, my half brother by my side. And recently I woke up really wrestling with some insecurities and, um, on that morning, I remember really thinking about who my brother was to me. And the, the thought that I landed on is, man, my brother really was my translator for black culture. And not only is he a trans, was he a translator? I mean, he was like the one that built the bridge to my father. So when I went to my father's house, I would literally, I was so much more reserved and quiet and watchful and afraid to speak up until my, my brother explained things to me. I remember my, my, my father would give me 10 bucks and, and give me you know some money and say, he would tell me to go get my hair cut. He'd say, hey, your hair is nappy. Go get your hair cut. Uh, and I would, my, you know, I would have to walk down the street to the neighborhood barbershop, a black barbershop. And I would just be so nervous because they would ask me what I wanted and they would say these phrases and these terms that I've never heard before. And my, my half-brother would, I would look at my half-brother and he would speak up for me. And he would say, oh, he wants to get lined up. You know, he wants to get, he, you know, keep it natural, fade, whatever. Like I, you know, and, and my point is that my brother was very much so my translator yeah. for my father and, um, you know, for black culture. And for me, this need to find and identify who the bridge builders are for me and who will who they will be for me in every single context uh, very much so um, still exists in my mind, um, in my thinking, in my worldview. And I bring this up and I share this because this is also I'm like a nervous wreck when I'm at church. Um, and oftentimes I'm reserved or awkward or quiet. I, I, I probably don't put that sort of a, a image out there. But that's how I'm feeling inside. And oftentimes, the little boy in me is just looking for those who are going to be, who are, who's going to be the bridge builder for this church context and that, that church context. Uh, there is a uh, quote um, that's very important and dear to me. And I want to relate this back to the church and to you, um, because I feel that many of you, in fact, probably all of you also 
um, hope to find home at church and within our church community and also have a desire to be understood and to experience grace and to be known in a deep in such a way that doesn't other you i don't think that's just my own personal experience and my own personal anxiety and mission now martin luther king he he gave this pretty profound he gave a lot of profound speeches yeah um, but during a Q&A at, uh, at, what is it, uh, University of Kalamazoo in Western Michigan, he, 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 he discussed the church and this very conversation about diversity and how the church can and engage with it. And I'm going to read, I'm gonna read uh, some of the quote. Um, he says, we must, we must face the fact that in America, the church is still the most segregated major institution in America. At 11 a.m. Sunday morning, when we stand and sing and Christ has no east or west, we stand at the most segregated hour in this nation. Yeah. And he says this is tragic. Um, and I remember when I first heard this quote. In fact, this was a, during a Q&A when he said this, and he was just responding to the question, hey, Dr. Martin Luther King, do you feel that integration can only be started and realized in the Christian church, not in schools or by other means? And this was his response. And he, he proceeds to repeat this, this very statement about segregation in the church. And I bring this, this quote up because I remember when I first heard this quote as an adult, or the first time it hit me, and um, it was, I was in the National Youth Workers Convention in San Diego, I think it was 2016. And uh, Dr. Sunchon uh, Ra, forgive me if I mispronounced that, he was speaking and he's like this scholar, theologian, um, advocate for diversity, ethnic diversity in, in the church. And he quote, he, he stated this, this quote, he started his, his message with this quote. Um, and, he, and then he proceeded to argue that this was still the state of the church today, that 11 a.m. Is, is, is quite possibly the most segregated hour of the week. And I remember how heavy I felt that quote was, how heavy it hit me. And for me, I don't think that it's simply because he said the S word, that he said segregation. You know, it's like, oh, my gosh, it, it, you know, we just learned that it's politically correct to not segregate people. Um, but I think that for me, it hit me heavy because it reminded me of why I so often feel so awkward in church contexts. It's not that I feel that church is entirely segregated. The institution is not segregated. But I think there is a culture of church that has required me to to shop and find churches where I could fit in. As I grew up as a Christian, um, I just learned from being taught and being modeled that if you don't like a church, you move on from this church to that church. And, and as we step into that sort of behavior and we engage with that sort of church shopping, what, I, um, what I've learned is that there are churches for young people and old people and there are churches that, you know, my friends would tell me, hey, that church over there is a black church. And this is a Cambodian church, a Latino church. 
This is the hipster church. Uh, you know, that church over there is super hip. They all dress and look like me or you or them. And I fell into that. And I, and I still think in that way in, very, in, in, in some ways. But for me, as a half Jamaican, half black, uh, half Jamaican, half Korean person who appears to solely be African-American, who feels Japanese, whose first language is Japanese, who goes to the Japanese supermarket on his bad days to get a piece of home, right, and comfort. Yeah. Um, that search is, will never end. If this is the, um, I feel, and, and Barb, Maybe this is where we turn this into a discussion. I feel that if this is the state uh, that the church, if this is the structure of the church at its best, my search for a home church will never end. And so I believe my theory at this point is that the structure of the church needs to extend beyond cultures, the cultures of this world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This world, we very much are a tribal world where it's very human to congregate with people that we get along with and that we look like, dress like, talk like, have common interests. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I feel like with with the church is that's not the end of the story. And perhaps that not, might not be the vision. And the reason why I bring this up, Barb, is because I've had such a difficult time finding a home in church over the last 20 some odd years. Yeah, thanks so, thanks so much. Wow, um, powerful, Alvia. Um, gosh, the, the first thing I think I wanna say is that we do not reflect each other in our faces, mm. but we reflect each other in our stories. I go to the German store when I'm looking for a little slice of home and comfort. <laughs> and, so you and, know what I'm talking about. You know what I, I mean. I totally know what you're talking about, and I think <laughs> that um, I think that is the power of the story. Is that that is where we actually get to come together? Because I don't want to go like to the old person's church. I want to go to the every person's church. Uh, I don't want to go. Well, maybe I want to go to the hipster church. No, that was that was a <laughs> ridiculous statement that I'm making. But I I want to go to the church of everyone, and I want to go to that church that allows and has that room at the table. You know that uh, we talk about in our unity statement. But I, I think I'm understanding. I've been on such a learning curve with the race conversation because. I've been part of it in the past in my teenage younger years. And there was a part of me that wanted to be really complacent with it. Um, and then I realized, no, I needed to learn again. I needed to relearn. I needed to listen. Um, I needed to see. I need to change my mind, <laughs> perhaps. And uh, <laughs> yeah, and I want to do that. You know, I'm, I'm up for that. I'm up for that because I think it is, I think it's not the world. I don't think it's a political anything. I think it's the spirit of God breathing shalom, wholeness into the church. And uh, yeah, that's exciting. And then I want you to feel like you're at home, you know, and I don't know. I mean, um, we know each other very well. So yes, we do. well, that, I was just going to say, Barb, that, you know, it's 
because you know in thinking through this dialogue i wrestled with well what's the answer you know like what does that actually look like for us to be defined culturally by the spirit and is it you know and my mind goes through like oh well we need to hire more black people but for me in my case i need a half jamaican half korean <laughs> japanese person you know as a leader that i can look up to that can represent me and how i feel and that's like impossible yeah that's know? so beautiful because i need a female German whose roots are actually in Eastern Europe, who never knew her father leading me, you know, uh, whose were German was, was that pastor's first language also. But guess what? I don't think we're going to find that. And I just keep thinking, who does lead the church? We keep leaving that up to humans, but I, I'm going to Colossians <laughs> right now. In Christ, all things hold together in Christ. And we, we sang that, you know, in Christ, we sang that. Is that true? Because if it isn't true, then we're crazy as a people. <laughs> we call ourselves Christians. Yeah, indeed. Uh, yeah. So and I want to go back to your, we should hire someone who looks like me. I want to say yes to that. I want to say yes. and here. And yes, I want to say yes, but that's not the only thing that we're meant to do. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's awkward. It's messy. It's complex. And I know this is really a weird word, but it's also kind of beautiful. Mm. It's kind of beautiful that you get to share your story with me and I get to share my story with you and that that actually makes us love one another more than we did before we heard these things. You know, Barb, I one thing, um, and I told you this a few days ago that, man, you know, I see you as like the total bridge builder for me, like the translator, the translator, you know, um, for LBCF. And um, not that you teach me how to uh, say huzzah <laughs> or, you know, like what the meaning of cadre is. But I think that um, you have just been you one, you it's like you had a target on your in your eyes for me. And then you came and you said, I'm going to get to know that guy. And um, and you really, truly have um, listened and gotten to know some of the most shameful parts of my life. And then that's when grace has come in, in our friendship and, 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 and me being led by you also and uh, ministered to. Um, but I think it also is so simple as to you have like this story about liverworth um, that you have shared a number of times. When you share these stories, that's exactly like me bringing curry that looks like poop to my school campus in elementary school and all my friends would make fun of me because yeah. my food stinks, right? But my point is this, it's just that it's so strange that it has nothing to do with necessarily image or race, this whole how we can be a body. But in you taking moments and in, in so many moments ago, man, I totally relate with you, LV, right now. Oh my gosh, I have like... You know, I, I may have told you about my experience with being a Japanese boy 
on campus and you're like, oh my gosh, I was I was the the girl with stinky cheese on campus and in and in movie theaters and I was so self conscious, you know. And I realized I learned how to put that away. And then I feel like there was something so amazing in how we we're able to partner in that same feeling together, you know. Um, and and I think for me that's where the the answer is in um, in finding home in community. Mm. And I, I, I would say that, yeah, I, I, I would say it's the power of story. It's the power of choosing to know one another. Um, and you are such a leader. You're such a natural leader. You're such a fun guy to follow. Um, I, I get to learn from you all the time, the way that you give yourself, um, the way that you spread yourself too thin. <laughs> and gosh, I don't want to, I don't want to end this conversation, but we're going to have to continue it over dinner. And um, I'm going to read a quote right now. Does that sound okay? Is there, are there any okay. last words that you have? Is there anything else that you want to say to this community? Yeah, actually there is. So uh, Romans 12, um, it says the word transformed. And I just wanted to say that that totally, I, that, that hits me in my core because I'm one who wants to find out the formula. I always say this. So I want to, when, when I read be transformed in Romans, I think, okay, just tell me how to be transformed and I'm going to do it. And I think that this is how, um, and it, so instead it's not this being transformed and learning the formula, but it's, it's this ongoing process. And my only point is that I really believe that this, conversation and this act of our church, this process of our church engaging with diversity and racism is this ongoing conversation that's going to take, it's never ending. I, that, yes, yes, yes. Amen. Amen. Preach. That is so true. The, this conversation only has a comma, you guys. We're going to continue it. Um, and we talked about putting actions to our words. And we have, um, we, we've partnered with a company, a local Long Beach company, CCEJ. And they are, we're going to be doing some listening sessions. We're going to be doing a really short little questionnaire. We're going to be learning together as community um, soon and very soon. And we're going to continue to update you on that. The pastoral team and the elders will continue to send dates out for that. We have something happening, hopefully within the next couple of weeks, and you will be the first to know. But yes, this is the beginning of the rest of our lives together. And um I want to I want to end with two quotes. I thought I wanted to do one, but I'm going to do them both. So bear with me, people. The first one is from um, this is Brenda Salter, Salter McNeil from her book Roadmap to Reconciliation. She says this, but if we're not careful, it is quite possible and tempting to be more in love with the idea of reconciliation than to actually engage in the actual work of reconciliation, the arduous, painful, and messy marathon, long-term hope, work of reconciliation. That's the pivotal question we must ask. Are we more in love with the idea of following Jesus than actually following Jesus, including to and through difficult areas, 
Brenda Salter McNeil. And then one of the people that has blessed me almost more than any other in my learning reading, uh, this, this man, Willie James Jennings, is amazing. And in his book, After Whiteness, An Education in Belonging, he says this, and I've quoted him before, I am turning attention to the original trajectory of a God who has ended hostility and has drawn all of creation into a reconciliation that we do not control. God offers us an uncontrollable reconciliation, one that aims to recreate us, reforming us as those who enact gathering and who gesture communion with our very existence. We end hostility. This, of course, is a dream, he writes, but it is God's dream. Selah. And now we are going to return to worshiping with song in Danny Shaniker. <laughs> 